Joshua sets it up at this place called Gilgal. And then later it moves to Shiloh. And that's where it is when uh, Samuel is, a, is just a boy and uh, Eli is, is the judge and Eli's old and his sons Phineas and Hophni, I think, are, are uh, ungodly and they're, they're doing wrong things. And anyway, uh, the Philistines come against the nation of Israel. And the Israelites lose. And they think, well, what we need to do is get the Ark of the Covenant and we'll bring the Ark out and the Ark will enable us to defeat the Philistines. Well, if you know the story, they take the Ark out and the Philistines beat them. And they steal the Ark. And this, this uh, it's interesting, this news comes back to Eli. Uh, both of his sons die. And that, I'm sure, bothered him, but that's not the... <laughs> The real thing is that really bothered him is he heard that the ark was captured. And when that happened is, is he fell over backward and died. He probably had a heart attack or something because, his, because the ark was gone. The ark represented the presence of God. And Phineas' wife was giving birth during this. And she gave birth to a son. And she, she died in childbirth. And she named her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. It was a really serious thing. They recognized that the, the manifest presence of God, the glory of God, was, was represented by this thing, the ark. And they had, you know, the Shekinah glory of God that would appear there in the tabernacle of Moses. And they said the glory has departed. Now, continuing on a little bit, the ark goes and stays with the Philistines for a number of months. And, and they put it in the house of Dagon, their God. And then they wake up and Dagon's worshiping at the presence of God. <laughs> he falls over. Even, even idols know to worship Jehovah. So anyway, they uh, start being cursed and have these various illnesses because the ark is there. And they realize they need to send the ark back to the nation of Israel. So they put it on a cart with some animals. And they don't even, they don't even uh, guide it or anything. They just, they just say, if it goes back to Israel, we'll know that that God was, was afflicting us. And that's what happens, and it goes out to this city, and then these people from Kirjath Jerim come, and they bring it to this guy's house named Abinadab, and it stays at this guy's house. It's there's some debate about this, but it seems like somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty to seventy years. Now, here's the fascinating thing, okay, is that the tabernacle of Moses was at Shiloh, and the the Ark of the Covenant left. Because it got captured by the Philistines. Right? And then it came back to this other town, Kirjath Jerim. The tabernacle of Moses is still in Shiloh, and then it moves to Gibeon. But the ark and the tabernacle are not reunited until Solomon completes the temple. Now you say, why does all that history matter? Well, for one thing, it's this there was a period of about 50 to 70 years where the nation of Israel was doing all of the ritualistic sacrifices, all of the things that Moses had prescribed, they were doing this in the tabernacle of Moses, and yet the presence of God wasn't there. That's a, that's a frightening concept. What it, what it means is, and, and think about this, 50 to 70 years, this means that that an entire generation, generation of, of Levites grew up 
doing the things associated with their faith, and yet there's no manifestation of God. And this became normal. They literally didn't know what they were missing. In some way, I think, I think starting this church up, you know, we are, we are in some measure selfish because, because Molly and I, we really want to raise our kids in a church, in an environment where they can encounter the manifest presence of God, yeah. where, where they can actually meet God and see God move and, and touch people and do things. And, uh, you know, if, I, if we hadn't started this church, I'd drive somewhere where that was happening or I'd, I'd move. It's, it's that important. The, the, the presence of God is the highest value. And so they were doing, they were doing what, what they believed was worship. But it was, in effect, empty because God wasn't there. Now, the crazy part is that nobody seemed bothered by this except for David. Because David loved God, and David loved the presence of God. And I want you to read this verse in Psalm 132, verses 4 and 5. David actually made this vow. And he said, I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Now, I always read this and thought about he was talking about wanting to build a temple, and, I, and he did want to build a temple, and I think that applies. But if you put this in the context of what was going on, David seems to be the only person that notices that the ark and the tabernacle are not united. It's really, it's really amazing to me. And David, David is thinking, I need to get the Ark of the Covenant a house. I need to make a house for God. I need to, I need to reunite structure with presence. And so I'll tell you what David did in a minute, but, but I wanted to make this point really quickly, which is that it's not until Solomon completes the temple, I explained this, that the ark goes back in what Moses prescribed. What Solomon's temple teaches us is that structure and presence can coexist. I don't know if you got what I just said there. So, so uh, if, you're, if you're like uh, a lot of people in non-denominational churches and charismatic churches and whatever, you... you probably think that organization is, is like the devil or something, okay? And, and the reason is, is that we look at uh, church history, and what happens is that, that God starts a revival. He does something. The Spirit of God begins to move. Studying this out throughout history, there's, there's people being saved, healed, delivered, all kinds of amazing things happen. And then it gets a little crazy. So there's got to be some organization, and people come in, and they make some rules, and they... they facilitate certain things, and what happens over time is that the structure pushes the move of God outside of the church, and the structure begins to serve itself rather than the presence, but you can go too far the other way, which is to say that you believe in no structure, and, and I want to, 
you know, encourage you that it's possible to have uh, organized meetings <laughs> and an organized uh, religion, if you want to call it that, where, where the Spirit of God is still valued and, and moving. My, my mom is on her way to Bethel Church right now in Reading to go to a, a conference out there. And they sent her this video. And, and they said, now, if you come to church, <laughs> you can come to this service, like the 8.30 or the 10, but you can't come to both. And if you come, when the service is over, you have to exit through this door. And you need to do it immediately. And if, if you go up for prayer, you need to bring your stuff with you. Because what's going to happen is there's a line of people from all over the world outside the other door. And the moment you get up, they need to come sit down. Now, I don't know that anybody in the world is, is accusing Bethel of, of quenching the move of God. Okay, what they're doing is that they've got thousands and thousands of people that are trying to come to these meetings. Which necessitate, because they're building, actually they need a much bigger building and they're trying to build one. But... Uh, They've had to create organizational structures to facilitate the move of God. Does that make sense? They've had, so they aren't trying to stop anything from happening. They're trying to minister to as most people as possible. The problem is not the structure. The problem is when the structure begins to exist to perpetuate itself. Or when, when we're doing these things and, and, and the presence of God isn't there and we don't even notice. Which is really frightening. But David was concerned about all this, and he, he vowed a vow that he would build a, a tabernacle uh, or a place for God to dwell. Okay? Now, what, what's interesting is that David doesn't bring the ark back to the tabernacle of Moses, which is what the law would say that he was supposed to do. Instead, David builds a separate tent in Jerusalem by his house. And after a, uh, you know, a misstep with, with Uzzah, uh, they get the Ark of the Covenant, and it's one of the greatest scenes in the Bible where they're, they're worshiping before the Ark as it comes into town. They're doing these sacrifices. David's dancing uh, uh, in, a, in a linen ephod. He's not dressed like a king. His wife despises him in her heart and is barren from that day forward. Don't, don't despise extravagant worship. You'll end up barren. Um, not not physically, although maybe physically, but uh, uh, extravagant worship is, is where fruitfulness happens. So anyway, uh, David, he's dancing before the Lord, and he brings the ark in to this tent that he has built. And what's fascinating about this tent is it's not like Moses's at all. There is no veil between the holy place and the most holy place. There's just an ark in a tent. And David goes in there all the time with a whole bunch of singers. In fact, he gets musicians and singers. I gave you all the scriptures for this. You can look it up later. But he creates 24-hour, seven-day-a-week worship in, in the presence of God in this tabernacle, which was illegal under the law. He should not have done it. Saul died for trying to act as a priest. He didn't die. He had the kingdom stripped from him. For trying to act as a priest when he was a king. But David erected this tabernacle that was all about the worship of God, and he went in there personally 
The tabernacle of Moses, the high priest, could only go in there once a year. And he had to do everything right. Josephus says that they used to tie a rope around his, his waist in case he screwed up in there and he died. They'd have to haul him out because nobody else could go in there. And yet David doesn't seem concerned by any of this. Now, what's really phenomenal is, is first of all, I mean, whether or not this next part is true, Understand, look, what David did, he could not legally do under the Mosaic law. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was not a priest. He was not supposed to go before the Ark of the Covenant and worship. Now, what's even crazier is that it's, it's possible. Don't make a doctrine out of this. It's possible, though, that David was actually an illegitimate son. Psalm 51 says this. He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, some people say, well, that's just talking about the fact that we're all sinners. And we are. I'm not going to debate with you about it. I don't know. But it is interesting that when Samuel came to Jesse's house and said, show me all your sons, David doesn't get invited. He doesn't. Now, it could be because he's the youngest or whatever, but his brothers don't like him. You notice that? But who does like him? You know, you know, David, whether, whether he was an illegitimate son or not, he spent hours by himself on the backside of the mountain with his, with his harp and a bunch of sheep and the presence of God. And he learned to love and worship God in that environment. What's interesting is, if it's, if it's true that he was an illegitimate son... Deuteronomy 23.2 says that it would be illegal for him to participate in any kind of worship. He couldn't come to the feast days and things like that under the 10th generation. That's what Deuteronomy 23.2 says. So I want you to think about this. What is the tabernacle of David? Well, we'll read the scripture in a minute, but it's a picture. It's, it's David somehow pulled a future reality back into his present. The, the tabernacle of David is the church. It's, it's anybody at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, coming before the presence of God and having an encounter with him. You don't have to be part of a special family. You don't even have to be born right. You can be, you can be the, the red-headed stepchild, and you can come into the presence of God. And I want you to notice this. Uh, after the inauguration, uh, there were no more blood sacrifices like at the tabernacle of Moses. Again, they were doing those at Gibeon. Why don't we kill any animals here? Let's read. Let's read Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 7. <laughs> so he's talking, to, he says, but into the second, he's saying into the Holy of Holies, with the high priest <coughs> uh, alone once every year, but not without blood, which he offered for himself and the heirs of, for the heirs of the people. 
And the Holy Ghost thus signified that the way of the holiest was not yet made manifest while, <coughs> um, excuse me, while the first tabernacle was still standing, which thing is a figure for the time present. All right. Uh, skip on down to, what did I say? I think I wrote the wrong scripture. Well, anyway, it says he entered once into the holy place for us obtaining eternal redemption for us. The point is, it says Jesus by his own blood entered once into the holy place. So, you can read it. It's in chapter 9. Anyway, why is it there blood sacrifice in, in the church today? It's because it's already been offered. And it says he entered into the holy place one time. What's the holy place? Well, it's heaven, right? We know that Jesus entered into heaven and he made a way for us to come in there. But where is heaven? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within you. That's right. Now, I mean, heaven's out there. I mean, we're going to go to heaven. I'm, I'm all in on that. But part of what it means when he says he entered once into the holy place, it's saying he made one sacrifice that perfected you forever. He consecrated a special temple right here. Just like David did. David made one sacrifice. He, he consecrated this special tabernacle. It was a special place for him to meet with God. In some way, it seems self-serving. Now, bless the entire nation. But it's this special place right by his house where he can meet with God. David's a type of Jesus. Jesus died. Shed his blood one time and created a special meeting place inside your heart. And now he lives there 24-7. Anytime you can go into the Holy of Holies. And you don't have to offer any sacrifices to get in there. What's that mean? It means, it means you don't get in there based on how much you've read the Bible lately. Or how holy you've lived. Or, or whether or not you've done everything right. Now those things are, are helpful and important. But what gets you... Fellowship with God is the blood of Jesus, period. Amen. Now, what went on in this tabernacle? It was really interesting. It wasn't like Moses' tabernacle. There were musicians. There were greeters. There were the gatekeepers, they called them. There were prophetic musicians and singers. They even had scribes. You know, I love this. This ought to encourage some of you. So there's prophetic musicians and stuff like Casey and all these people. There's people that want to dance down here like Josh. And there's scribes. What, who are those people? Those are the people that when the crazy stuff's going on, they want to sit in the back and catalog. <laughs> Is there a place for those people in the kingdom of God? Absolutely. There's a place for everybody in the presence of God. Now, at some point, you ought to put the notebook down and join in the dance. But, it's, but, but I'm serious. It's, there's, there's a place for all different types of, of people. And there were, there were songs. There were thanksgiving, great joy. You know, David would write songs, and he'd give them to Asaph and say, here, sing this. There was clapping and shouting and dancing. It's all scriptural. You can read the scripture. They raised their hands. They bowed, bowed down in worship. They said Amen. There's even a likelihood that they wave banners around. Praise God. 
So unique fe features of Davidic worship. Let's go back over these again real quickly. Anyone could access the presence of God. We already talked about that. It could take place anytime. There was already a blood sacrifice made. There's the scripture, 912. People were allowed a wide variety of ways to express their adoration for the Lord. Look, I'm not, I'm not going to tell people to calm down until things are a lot crazier than this. I'm just being real. I, I'm, I don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable, but I mean, you understand David's tabernacle was, was a lot crazier than, I mean, we're doing good, but I want to see us worship Jesus, Jesus even more. Now, you be you, all right? There's no pressure, but I'm not going to get mad at somebody for being themselves. And if somebody being themselves bothers you, then it might be you that has the problem. <laughs> Now, look over at the book of Amos. This is where I really wanted to get to. <clears throat> Amos 9, 11 through 15. So God loved the tabernacle of David. And he actually prophesied that it would be rebuilt. So when Amos wrote this, you've got to understand that a lot of time has passed between David and Solomon, and so Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam didn't listen to his counselors, and so the, the kingdom divided into two parts, the northern part, the nation of Israel, and the southern part, the tribe of Judah, eventually got absorbed into Judah, and both, both nations went into idolatry, Israel worse, but Judah as well, and they were aware of this truth that when they went into idolatry, or at least this, the prophets were aware of it, when they went into idolatry, they started to lose all these military victories. When they started to worship something other than Jesus, they started to see a lot of oppression and failure. And so there was this truth that was in their mind that if we will restore Davidic worship, if we'll restore the true kind of worship, we'll begin to see victory again. So look at Amos 9. Verse 11, God prophesies something. He says, in that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen, which are called by my name, says the Lord, that does this. Okay, so he says here that he's going to rebuild the tabernacle of, of David. And that that's going to result in, in their victory over Edom and these other nations. If you were an Israelite individual, when this was written, if you looked at this, what you would probably think is that God was going to literally rebuild a tent and somehow get the ark back in there and we were going to restore this 24-7 worship and that that would cause us to quit losing to all these foreign nations, to quit being oppressed by Edom and, and the Gentile nations around us. That's what it appears to them to mean. However, uh, as is often the case, things like this have an actually far deeper spiritual meaning that is revealed to us in the New Covenant. So let's look over at Acts 15, which explains this. In Acts 15, there's the uh, this council in Jerusalem, and there's this issue that they're dealing with, which is that Christianity, when it started, it was it was all Jewish people. 
right? There are all these people at Jerusalem. They all got saved, 3,000 on the first day. They're all, they're all Jewish. All the 12 disciples are Jewish. Um, but then Peter goes to Cornelius' house and gets all of Cornelius' house saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Paul and Barnabas go around and they start seeing all these miracles amongst the Gentiles. And a bunch of these people get converted and become Christians. And there's a lot of arguing in Acts about how the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers are going to get along. And how do we integrate these two things? And the problem was, it's not so much that, that the Jews didn't want to integrate anybody. Throughout, throughout uh, Israel's history, you can always convert to Judaism. Uh, you can still convert to Judaism. It doesn't matter what, what your ethnic background is. You can, you can convert to Judaism. But... To do that, you've got to keep the law. You've got to follow the religious tradition, right? And so what the Jews were saying is, well, look, it's like these people are becoming part of our, our family, but they're not, they're not, you know, keeping the law. They're not being circumcised. They're not following all this stuff. And there's a big debate about whether or not that, that needed to happen. And thank God this was resolved in Acts 15. A lot of people still haven't had it resolved in their theology, but it, they... They said, no, you don't have to keep the law. All right, it's in there. Read it. It's, it's a message in another day. But, but really what they're trying to figure out initially is, is it legal for the Gentiles to be saved? And James, in uh, <coughs> verse 14, stands up and he says, Simon Peter has declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, says the Lord, who does all these things. Okay, what's going on here? James is looking back at this Old Testament scripture, and he's saying, we missed the point. We thought that God was going to literally rebuild this tabernacle, and that would result in our military victory. That's not it. What happened was, God built a church. He built a group of people in love with him, in love with Jesus, that would worship him in spirit and truth, like John 4.24 says, and that this results in the conversion of the Gentiles, not the destruction. Because Jesus said this, the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to what? To save them. The sons of thunder, James and John, they were confused about this, and they wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy Samaria. And that's when Jesus said, no, I didn't, I didn't come to do that. That military stuff's over, guys, because the issue is not flesh and blood. The issue is spiritual. And, and what this shows us is that when there is a group of people that will authentically worship Jesus, it results in the conversion of, of unbelievers. That's what he's saying. Authentic worship will draw people to Jesus. So what this shows is that this prophecy in Amos is about right now. 
It's about right now. So, let's read the rest of it. How's that sound? Go back to Amos 9. So I want to, I want to worship God with my whole heart because that, in part, is what brings people to Jesus. But number 13, or verse 13, what else happens? Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that sows seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills will melt. Yeah. What's this saying? It's saying that, that worship releases the supernatural provision of God. Yeah. I'll restore the tabernacle of David, and what's going to happen is that the plowman, he's, he's saying, so there's seasons, right? There's seed, time, harvest. The problem is that time part, right? We don't like that part. We want, we want seed harvest. Well, you can't, you can't circumvent the processes. You can't skip stuff. Skipping stuff is, is how the devil tricks us. But if you worship with your whole heart, the processes can be accelerated. What should take 10 years can take five. What might have took five can take a year. What once took a year might take a month. I'm telling you, if you'll worship God with your whole heart, you can accelerate your growth. You can. It's not a shortcut. It's, it's speeding up the natural process. And also, it says, you know, that... that the grapes and stuff are gonna are gonna come. What's that? It's a picture of provision. So there's gonna be more provision if we're worship. Verse 14, it gets better. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they will build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they will plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof, and they will also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. What's this saying? There are waste places. In our lives, there are places of brokenness in our history. There's cities, metaphorically, if you will, parts of our lives that have been destroyed by the enemy. There's places of bondage sometimes. And worship can bring freedom. It can. If you'll worship God with your whole heart, it can break bondage off of you. It can break bondage off of other people. Last verse. And I will plant them upon their land, and they will no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord my God. So I want you to read this again. Just think about it. Verse 11. I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. I'm going to plant you in your land. Your land is a picture of your promises. It's the promised land. Right? We all have promises from God. How many of you have promises from God? You, you, have a, you have a bunch of them in the Bible, but how many of you have specific prophetic promises that God's spoken over your life? Well, look, how do I, there's, there's this continual quest from the devil to push me off my promises. There's this continual Drive to try to get me to quit, to give up, to feel discouraged, to to 
fall over, if you will. It's a picture of a plant. And, and what he's saying is, is that, you know, there's some, there's some, you know, Jesus teaches this, that there's some seeds that they go down and they don't have much roots. And so when they, when they come up, the sun causes it to wither. What's that? It's the hardship of life, the difficulty, the, the assault of the devil. It can cause the promise to wither. But what he says here is that as you worship, it's like God is planting you in your land, in your promised land. It's like, it's like somehow as I worship, God takes a flag and he stakes it in my promise. And he says, this is my land. I'm not backing off, and I can stay here, and I'm going to win, and I'm going to hang on until I see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Worship with God is part of my, worshiping God is part of my history with God. And I love, I love this thing Bill Johnson says, you know, people a lot of times, he's, he's an anointed guy, and, and, and anointing can be transferred, so people want him to lay hands on him, and so he does and whatever, but he says, I can lay hands on you, and God can touch you, but I can't give you my history with God. See, the reason David was able to defeat the giant was because he had a history of defeating the lion and the bear when nobody was watching. He had, he had a history alone with, with the Lord, worshiping the Lord on the on the back side of the, the desert. It, it encourages me so much. If, you know, this teaching about the tabernacle of David's where a lot of our, you know, our friends at the International House of Prayer draw heavily from this, from this model. That was where they, they do 24-7 worship in the spirit of the tabernacle of David. I honor that. I think it's a awesome idea. Um, but anyway, it's, I, don't, I would say it's not so much talking about that. It's talking about our whole lifestyle. Right, any twenty-four-seven, we're supposed to worship, worship God. But anyway, uh, but they talk about in their inception that <laughs> I love Misty Edwards. Anybody like Misty Edwards? So yeah, so she's awesome. But she would talk about that when when they started, they were in this trailer, and there'd be the sound guy and her and like Mike Bickle, <laughs> and that's it. And she'd just be singing to Jesus, and you know, by herself at like two in the morning doing this for a couple hours and you think wow well you know what good does any of that do well I'm, I'm telling you that's that's planting you in your promised land it's building a history with God the reason she's able to stand in front of thousands of people thousands of people and lead, lead worship the way she does is because of, of that history of doing it just with the Lord well that's really encouraging all right Let's all stand up. I want to make this last point. I just listed a whole bunch of benefits of worship. How many of you want to worship more after that? All right. So we listed all these benefits, but I want to encourage you that you're not supposed to worship because of the benefits. You can be aware of them. You can believe for them to happen in your life. But worship's a response to the goodness of God. And even if I don't get any of the benefits, I want to worship Him because of who He is. So my prayer team can come down here. 
you need personal prayer in just a minute, we'd love to agree with you. We're going to dive deeper into this thing. We're going to talk more about David and worship and, and loving God with our whole heart. But we want to live a lifestyle. We want to be a church full of the worship of God, full of the presence of God. But if you need prayer for something, I believe God's here. I believe he wants to answer your prayers. I believe he wants to help you. So if you need healing or if you need a breakthrough financially, if you need saved, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, whatever you need, you can come down and pray with one of my prayer ministers. We'd love to agree with you. I'm going to pray for everybody, and then we'll dismiss service. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we get to worship you because you're good, because you're worthy, because you love us. And I thank you that we just get to worship you because of who you are, not because of anything we want from you, but I do thank you that all these positive things happen. And I just believe you that as we worship as a church, that you're planting us in our land and that we aren't backing off our promises right. and that we're believing what you say. Yes. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. We worship you in Jesus' name.